I want to share with you an article uh, by a mother named Janelle Williams Paris, and it's titled, uh, When Mother's Day is Hard. Janelle Paris wrote, a quick look at our culture shows that idealized images of motherhood are inaccurate, and the scripture reveals the same. Uh, Ruth was left childless and widowed at a young age. Rachel, Hannah, and Sarah were infertile. Even Mary lost sons under terrible circumstances. Two mothers of two kings, both named Ahaziah, encouraged their sons to be wicked and unjust. Scripture tells stories like those in our churches. Women in diverse life circumstances, sometimes thriving, sometimes coping, sometimes going under. The fairy tale marriage of marriage Excuse me, the fairy tale of marriage and motherhood is just that. It's a fairy tale. And our culture is one of motherhood amidst wonderful families with strong marriages and happy children. And it's a story of motherhood deferred due to later childbearing, motherhood disrupted by divorce, motherhood, by, uh, motherhood that's lost by infant and child death and miscarriage and motherhood unachieved due to infertility and undesired singleness. The point is that the church community does not consist of a homogenous, one-size-fits-all journey of womanhood. And we hurt women in our churches by snubbing, refusing, or humiliating those mothers whose journey is not that of June and Ward Cleaver. Today... We gather to praise and thank God for his work with the women who have happy families and the women, men, girls, and boys who are hurt by their mothers and the mothers who have lost their children and the women who long to be wives and mothers but aren't. We have come to worship Jesus and Jesus alone, not the idealized images of our mothers, or ourselves. Now, that's a good word, isn't it? And I think it's particularly appropriate as we look at a passage of Scripture concerning a mother's great faith this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And I'm going to be reading verses 21 to 28. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And you'll see those verses up uh, on the screen if you'd like to refer to the verses that way. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, 
she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is the word of the Lord. Did you hear what I just heard? Jesus called her a dog. What's up with that? Unbelievable. Really? Well, why, why would he do that? Why, this, why this, this, this racial slur? What is this about? Well, I'll tell you what it's about. It, it, it is about a mother's great faith. And there's a story here. A story that Matthew's first hearers needed in their day, and it's one that we need in our day. And I'll tell you this much. I mean, it's verses like these that leave me absolutely convinced in the historicity of Matthew's gospel. I mean, think about it for a moment. If I were selling you a new religion, if I were marketing you a Messiah, and I wanted to share with you information about that Messiah, I would never include these verses, ever. Totally, I would leave them out, right? Matthew doesn't. What's with that? Well, that's what we're going to find out here. The the, the story begins in in verse 21 with the phrase, leaving that place. Jesus had been in Galilee, so he leaves that area, and he goes north. He leaves the borders of Israel, like an American, uh, leaving the country to perhaps uh, go for a a brief break into Canada or Mexico. He leaves the, the, the pressure of the crowds, the stress of dealing with the religious enemies, the scribes and Pharisees, and he's been invited uh, to the home of an unnamed disciple in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is north, north of the borders of Israel, Tyre and Sidon. About 20 miles apart, two very busy uh, port communities. And it's in that region there where Jesus is as a guest of some unnamed host. Probably a pretty nice home because the disciples are there. So there's going to be quite a few people. And that means there's going to be a Spacious home, courtyard, uh, gated, fenced 
walled area for security. And it, it's, it's going to be a nice place for, for some R&R there along the coast and the breeze and away from the stress. And, and, and the people in Tyre and Sidon, I mean, they, they're familiar with the ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter 3 tells us that, that people from that region had been in contact with Jesus. And so when he goes up to that area to leave the stress of the crowd, he's not going to be incognito for very long. He's not. And, and he's there in that home when she shows up. Now, now, Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. Mark's account calls her a Syrophoenician woman. So Mark is speaking in terms of the geography of where she is. And Matthew is speaking about her in regards to... Um, her heritage, her race, and specifically the Canaanites, who, as you recall, were historic enemies of God's people. So there's a message there. This Canaanite woman, she shows up. She figures out where Jesus is. And there she is on the other side of that wall of that property, crying out, Lord, Son of David, I know you're in there. I know you're in there. I need your help. My daughter is suffering terribly. She's crying out. Scripture says, she said, have mercy on me. My my daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. I can only imagine what that might feel like. I can only imagine this mother's angst as she witnesses her daughter, her daughter suffering from from, uh, lack of sleep, lack of appetite, self-inflicted wounds, uh, as her daughter's life just, just kind of ebbs away, she's growing thinner and thinner. You can see the, you can see her rib cage and, and, and her face is pasty white and her, her, the, the dark circles in her eyes and, and she's just obviously not herself. She used to play and skip and, and run and giggle but there's none of that that's going on now. None of that whatsoever as, as, as she's just slowly wasting away from, from this demon possession and her mother is is helpless and just just doesn't know what's going to happen. How is this going to... And she finds out where Jesus is and she goes to where Jesus is and, and she's calling out and notice how it's affecting her. Notice that Matthew says, she didn't say, Lord, have mercy on my daughter. Lord, have mercy on me because any mother knows that the pain of the child becomes the pain of the mother. I need help. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And to this crying, weeping, wailing, aching mother, Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus did not say a word. Did not answer a word. Nothing. He's there in the living room, visiting with the host. 
Drinking some coffee, some of that, some of that fine Phoenician Folgers roast coffee. Visiting, talking, sharing. Everybody can, everybody, everybody can, everybody can sense the elephant in the room. Woman's crying out, "Help me!" You just sipping away. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for letting us enjoy this time. Be guests in your home. Jesus is silent. Not a word. Unbelievable. What's going on here? Now, sometimes we can understand the silence of Christ, can't we? Can't we? Remember, you know, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63... When Jesus is before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and Caiaphas finally says, what are you going to say to all of these testimonies about you? Matthew says in 26.63, but Jesus remained silent. And when Jesus is before Pilate, after the trial with Caiaphas was over, and he gets ushered into Pilate's presence, and Pilate finally says, what are you going to say to all of, of, of these testimonies about you? Pilate, who had been invited to the table of truth, but stood Jesus up, Jesus remained silent. Sometimes we can understand the silence of Christ, but we can't understand the silence of Christ here. Why here? Why here? How do you deal with the silence of Christ? Well, personally, I don't like it. I don't like it for two reasons. First of all, I'm an American. And Americans don't like silence. Do we? We don't. No. Listen to this. And Mara Lindbergh, wife of Charles Lindbergh, wrote this. She once wrote, We seem so frightened today of being alone that we never let it happen. Even if family, friends, and movies should fail, there's still the radio to fill up the void. Now, instead of planting our solitude with our own dream blossoms, we choke the space with continuous music, chatter, and companionship to which we do not even listen It is simply there to fill the vacuum. And when the noise stops, there is no inner music to take its place. Now, she wrote those words in 1955. Now, you tell me, is it more or less noisy today than in 1955? Yeah, you just told me. We've got... We've got cell phones, iPhones, iPads, iPods. We get into the car, we turn. I know, I do this. We go home, the television comes on. There's just music and, and stuff going on all the time. We just don't like, we don't like silence. In fact, I'll tell you this much. When I was in seminary and I went to, uh, to my church growth class, Here's what headquarters taught us. Sunday morning, when the folks come in the worship center, whatever you do, have some background music going on. Have some, because heaven forbid people would come in and it's quiet. 
silent. That's what headquarters taught us in church growth school. Because Americans don't like silence. It makes them feel uneasy. and We wouldn't want that. But I think sometimes silence is the best thing. Sometime this year, a 40-year-old mother is finally going to muster up the courage to go to Washington, D.C. And when she gets to Washington, D.C., she is going to slowly, carefully walk up to the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And she's going to have a piece of tracing paper in her left hand. She's going to have a charcoal in her right hand. And she's going to step up to that wall. And she's going to see a reflection of herself. And she is going to trace the name of the father she never knew. And the day she does that, It's going to be silent. How do you deal with silence? Furthermore, how do you deal with the silence of Christ in your crisis? That's the second reason we don't like silence. (laughs) We don't like the idea of Jesus being silent in our crisis We want him to do something. We want him to say something. We'll take anything but silence. Yet as we look into the pages of Scripture, don't we see the lives of people who often cried out to God for help and heaven was silent? Can you imagine living in the generation, not not at the beginning of the Hebrews' enslavement of the Egyptians, or when Joseph died, or, or at the end of that period when Moses was born, can you imagine being right smack in the middle of that line? And that means that the baby that you're holding, when that baby is old enough to hold a brick, then that baby will then, that, that child will become an adult, and every day for the rest of their lives, they will make bricks. That's it. That's their lives. That's the life of slaves. Decades. They're born. They make bricks. They die. And then the next generation. And then the next generation. And then the next generation. And all the while, the parents are crying out to God, and heaven is silent. How do you deal with the silence of Christ? And it's such an important question because it really tends to strip away what we truly believe about who Jesus is. You see, you see, the question behind the silence of Christ is the question of Job chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does he? You know, am I only willing to serve God when it benefits me? What image of Jesus do I possess? Do I possess Jesus as the scriptures present him? Or is my image of Jesus what one of my classmates called a vending machine Jesus? 
The Jesus before whom we stand and take out our prayer coins. And then we put the prayer coin into the machine and we push the button fully expecting the vending machine Jesus to give us whatever we want, whenever we want it, however we want it. And if he doesn't, well then maybe he, you know, he's just broken or he just doesn't exist. I'm going to go to another machine. Does Job serve God for nothing? Do we? Do we feel like we have to have it all? We have to know exactly what's in God's mind all the time or before we truly trust him? What's God saying through his silence? And are we willing to trust Jesus even when he's silent? Well, the disciples weren't silent, that's for sure. They always have something to say. So, verse 23, the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. He keeps crying out after us. There she is on the other side of the wall, and she's crying. I, you know, I know you're in there. I, well, they've got to go to the store. Jesus sends them on an errand. They walk out of the gate, and there they meet her. I, I know he's in there. You tell him I want him. You get him out. Tell him I'm... <laughs> you go back forward. Fix her. Would you please just fix her? Send her away. My goodness. You know, see, he's been silent toward her, and they're uptight about it, not because of her, but they just, they're tired of catching it. The fact of the matter is, Jesus did exactly what they expected him to do. Because you see, in that culture, no self-respecting rabbi would have a conversation with a person of the opposite sex in public. It just, just wasn't, their, it wasn't their custom. It wasn't their culture. That's why in, in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well there, the, the disciples were just like aghast when they saw Jesus you know, having a conversation with this woman. Yeah, but no one dared say anything, you know. It's like, what's he doing? But don't say anything, you know, that kind of a thing. It just wasn't their culture. And uh, they're tired of catching it, you know. They, they, they want him to fix her so they don't have to put up with her anymore. And this is interesting, verse 24, Jesus answered, had to be within her hearing at this point. I mean, they're, they're you know, they're there, she's there. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Unbelievable. What? Jesus says concerning her, you are not my mission. You, you're not in my territory. I wonder how something like that would sound here. Let's see. Folks, from here on out, we're a Cherry Hills church. We're, we're a Robeson Meadows church. We're a 61822 church. Yeah, that's who we are. 
a, six, a 61822 church. That, that's our new name. 61822. Where do you go to church? 61822. So if you come here, you need to have a bachelor's degree. We'd really like it if you had a master's degree working toward a doctorate. Okay? And we'd like you to be white. Well, if you're not white, we want you to think white. Okay? Suburban? Republican. That's who we're here for. Yeah. Verse 24. Carl Sandburg, a poet, word crafter, was once asked by a reporter, Mr. Sandburg, what do you believe is the worst word in the English language? Worst word. Worst word? The worst word in the English language. Worst word in English. Worst word in the English language. The worst word in the English language is the word exclusive. I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel. Unbelievable. He, he ignores her, then he excludes her. What is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on here. She won't leave. That's what's going on here. Somehow she breaks in. Somehow she gets through. Verse 25 says the woman came and the verse says, knelt before him, but, but she uses the word proskuneo, which, which, means, it, which means worship. Well, yes, it means literally to kneel before, but, but for the purpose of worship. So she comes and she worships before Jesus, and even though he hasn't given her anything or promised her anything, she just breaks through and she falls in an act of worship to to the Lord, son of David. <laughs> and she cries out, Lord, help me. Help me. Which means she is in crisis. She's in crisis. And, and how do I know that? Because, because it's Lord, help. It's noun, verb, exclamation point. That's the, that's the crisis prayer. Whenever you hear a prayer here on this stage on Sunday morning, you know, you, we know that this is, we know that we're not in crisis when you hear us pray here on this stage. And why? Because no one in a crisis begins a prayer with our most gracious, heavenly, omniscient, omnipresent, almighty Father who transcends heaven. Nobody in crisis prays that way. They pray, noun, Lord, Verb, help! Huh? She worships him. And then he responds, here we go. He's going to help, verse 26. And having ignored her and excluded her, 
Now he says in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. Now, folks, in the first century, a dog wasn't a pet, okay? It, it, was, it was a scavenger. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a little higher up than a pig. Unbelievable. What is he doing there? I, you're saying, would you please just explain this? You keep saying, unbelievable. Get on with it. Okay. <laughs> Jesus, G, you know, Jesus is having Jesus is having three conversations here. Three conversations. Now, any mother knows what that's like to have three conversations at the same time. At the same time. Huh, Constance? And the first conversation that he's having is with the disciples. Uh, Here they are. Disciples, Canaanite woman, and us. And the first conversation is with the disciples. You see, you see, Jesus is simply saying what the disciples have been thinking. <laughs> That's why he says what he says. That's why he doesn't say when he doesn't say. And isn't it true? Sometimes we need to hear someone else say out loud our own thoughts and our own prejudices and our own biases in order to realize just how ridiculous and stupid they really are. Right? Mothers, you say to our children, what? Can you hear yourself? Can you hear yourself? That's really what's going on here. Because the disciples were so fixed on the preeminence of Israel. Even after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends to heaven, what do the disciples want to know? Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we going to be in charge? Jesus not telling. Bye. He's just so fixed on the preeminence. So Jesus just simply says out loud their own prejudices and their own biases in order to in order so that they can really taste just how just how how bitter what they're saying really is. And that's what makes this account so powerful. You see, the disciples think that they are in cahoots with Jesus while this poor, racially, religiously inferior woman just doesn't get it. But the fact of the matter is, it's Jesus and the woman who are in cahoots, and the disciples don't get it. And how do I know this? Because, Because Jesus breaks into a parable here. And, and when this, you have to, he's talking a language. And the language of parables, that's the language of riddles. And he's having, he's having a code conversation with her. So Jesus tells a story, a parable about a Hebrew father who, who was uh, at the, reclining at the dining room table. And when it came time for the father to break the bread and pass it to the children. The children were going to have their piece of bread and they were going to enjoy it as well. And then, and then the little puppies come to the table, all right? The little puppies, 
because they're little dogs. That's what that word means. Little bit of bread, little children, little bit of dogs. The, 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 the father breaks the bread. Of course he gives it to the children. He doesn't give it to the little dogs. And, and, and he's telling this parable. And, you know, I wonder how this story is going to end. And he kind of looks at her. And with a twinkle in her eye, she says, Ah, oh, but those little dogs... Those little dogs gobble up the little crumbs from the hands of little children who are playing there at the table as well, you see. Even the dogs, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus hears that, and he says, yes! Yes! And he gives her a high five. That's in the footnotes. And... You did it, woman. You have great faith. Uh, Up to the point of actually healing her, Jesus did exactly what the disciples expected him to do, but then he heals her. Why? Because of her extraordinary faith. And what made it so extraordinary? Because she came to Jesus spiritually bankrupt. And don't you remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She came to Jesus mourning. And don't you remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And, and then she had to patiently endure injury without resentment. And that That's the definition for meek. And remember what Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see what's going on? She simply embodies the Beatitudes that Jesus spoke of earlier at the Sermon on the Mount. They're north of Galilee. (laughs) My goodness. Surely the point of this passage is clear by now, isn't it? Jesus always rewards unrelenting faith, always. And this mother exemplified that in a way that just outshined the disciples. Here we have a Canaanite Gentile who gets her daughter healed. Here we have a Canaanite who disdains status more than most men do. Here we have an insightful seeker who understands better than the disciples do. Here we have this impure person who has greater access to God than the pure religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, even the disciples. Here we have a woman whose very story challenges us to overcome the hostility of exclusivity. Here we have one who challenges us to dismantle a prejudice which would set limits to the children of God. Her unrelenting faith boasted unfailing confidence in the king of all of the races and all of the nations, and she is willing to pay any price. She's willing to publicly humiliate herself to receive the grace that only Jesus could give. And so she lowers herself 
to the level of a dog. Her deep faith is such that just a small amount will do. I just need a crumb, Jesus. If I just have a crumb of your grace, my hunger will be satisfied for all eternity. And then she acts the part of a dog until she reaches her goal. And Jesus says, done. Wow, I'm impressed. Request granted, done. And now to the third audience, what I want to say to the women of Windsor Road, you are never more beautiful than when we get to witness your stubborn and unrelenting faith in worship, on your knees in worship. You're never more beautiful when we get to witness your, I'm not leaving you, Jesus, on behalf of the people in my life whom I love, my children that you put in my care. And, and some of those children are healthy and some of those children are hurting and some are suffering and some are in prison and some are addicted. And while the disciples roll their eyes because they'd rather deal with the less needy, Jesus sees extraordinary faith from an extraordinary mother. And what I want to say to you, Windsor Road, is that, you know, some of you, you're, you're just, you're one prayer away. You're one, you're one Sunday away. You're one small group study away from hearing the Lord say, request granted. Request granted. And what I want to tell you is that if you give up and if you quit, and if you quit your faith, or if you quit your marriage, or if you quit on your children, if you quit, then people are going to feel the pain of that quit. I implore you to continue to let us to see your beauty through your relentless faith, which will be rewarded. Jesus Christ always rewards unrelenting faith. He will one day say, done done and I say this in full confidence church family because there would be another day that would come when Jesus did say done yes it was the day and the place of his execution there at the cross at the place where dogs gather to scavenge the bones of the corpses of the criminals who hung there and whose bodies rotted off. There Jesus died at that place of execution, a slave's death, the place of dogs, a place where when he cried out to God, heaven was silent. And he endured relentlessly so that we might become not a happy, homogenous group of people, but so that he might be, through the power of his resurrection, king of all the nations, that we might be a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial community of the redeemed who with his spirit and his power, we too continue to worship, falling at his knees together as one family. 
Jesus Christ always rewards unrelenting faith. And that's what I wanted to say today. Amen.